hour at least uh, for audience Q&A at the end. Um, for the online audience, you can submit a question using the Slido window if you're watching on the Cato Institute website. Um, or if you're watching on Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube, you can ask a question by writing a comment using the hashtag uh, CatoFP, that's capital C, lowercase ato, capital F, capital P. Um, and I have a little uh, iPad here to, to read those online questions. For the in-person audience, simple, raise your hand, we'll bring a mic to you. Uh, and I will try to alternate between online and in-person questions. So. We'll start with Doug first and go down the line. Well, I would like to add my welcome to those of uh, my colleague in terms of our event today. The 70th anniversary of the, of the armistice is, uh, is hard to uh, believe in certain ways that 70 years have passed since what has been called the Forgotten War. Uh, but it does remind us that uh, there is no peace treaty, that formally a state of war still exists. There has been at times violence uh, over the years. Uh, killing of uh, American soldiers in the uh, DMZ over a tree, the taking of the USS Pueblo, which is actually, uh, you know, if you visit Pyongyang, you go to the great fatherland, Victor it's like the victorious fatherland war museum. The Pueblo is sitting on the river, and an English, gu English language guide will happily take you on and point out the bullet holes. I, I had that experience a few years ago when I visited. You know, that these episodes <laughs> still occur. This is a dangerous place. Go back to 2010 with the sinking of the Cheonan, a ship of the South Koreans, as well as bombardment of the island. You know, that this, so this remains a somewhat hot, a hot uh, you know, place, and it raises big questions today. After 70 years, where are we going in terms of relationships, both with South and North Korea? You know, the focus of this panel, of course, is the, uh, with the U.S. Uh, ROK alliance. It's important to remember this was a Cold War creation. The division of the uh, peninsula came with the close of the war over Japan. It had been a Japanese colony. The U.S. had no forces uh, around there. The U.S. had paid very little attention uh, to uh, Korea, but uh, the story was that, you know, at the State Department, a couple of colonels sat with a uh, globe and drew a line across the peninsula and said, well, let's see if the Soviets will accept this, which was rather surprising. The Soviets had troops nearby. They could have taken everything. On the other hand, it may have been Stalin was hoping to get a share of Japan. It could have been that he didn't care much. We don't know. But the peninsula was divided. I always emphasize, I've heard criticism of the United States over the division of the peninsula. Of course, if the peninsula had not been divided, everyone in the peninsula today would be ruled by the wonders of North Korea. And uh, my guess is that most South Koreans would have preferred not to be in that situation. So as bad as the division has been, it's certainly important to remember that that division allowed the creation and development of a democratic capitalist country in the South. And I, I suspect most of us in this audience know people in South Korea who are alive and free because of that division. So it's very important to keep that in mind. The, tra the division is tragic, but let us not misunderstand it, you know, its genesis. Uh, then, of course, the war came. Uh, you know, Kim Il-sung thought he had the opportunity. There's a lot that went into that, whether it, we can argue about the impact of the famous Dean Acheson speech and the defense perimeter. The Pentagon had clearly written this off. We have writing from uh, Douglas MacArthur. He didn't think the peninsula was very important. Nevertheless, the, the Cold War itself mattered, the fear of what the impact would be on Europe. Truman went in. Uh, as we neared the <coughs> Yalu River, the Chinese came in. You know, a lot could be said about that. This war went on until 
you know, July 1953, a terrible war, hundreds of thousands of dead, millions displaced, enormous destruction both north and south. And coming out of that, number one, to get the south to uh, kind of acquiesce to the armistice, <laughs> we promised a treaty and a defense commitment, and frankly, to have preserved South Korea in the early years of the Cold War would have required an alliance. South Korea was in no position to resist if the war had restarted, especially assuming the North would have been supported by both China and the Soviet Union. But it does raise the question of why does the alliance still exist today? You know, by the 1960s, of course, South Korea had an economic takeoff under uh, you know, a rather ugly president, Park Chung-hee, nevertheless, someone who got the economics much better than others, and that really started the surge that uh, moved South Korea forward. 60s and 70s, uh, you know, South Korea participated in the Vietnam War, demonstrated that soldiers clearly could fight. By the 1980s, we suddenly saw democracy on South Korea. South Korea made that very difficult jump from military regime to opposition. It was a difficult process. Nevertheless, it worked. Opposition parties took power peacefully. And by today, of course, there's no comparison between the two. That, uh, you know, to the extent we can trust statistics, South Korea has about 50 plus times the GDP, twice the population, a vast technological lead. It's a country with enormous role internationally in the top 10 economies, one that has diplomatic influence, uh, you know, Security Council membership, a lot of other things there. It has, South Korean citizen was the general secretary at the secretary general at the United Nations. That, uh, you know, so South Korea has landed in a very powerful position compared to that of North Korea. So it does raise the question of why the alliance and the commitment of the United States today. And I think that one has to ask whether you know, that case really is, uh, is still to be made. You know, if it's a question of North Korea, we can argue about North Korean ambitions. We frankly don't quite know what Kim Jong-un wants or expects. Uh, does he believe that he could take over the South? I have no doubt that he would enjoy taking over the South, but it's not at all clear that he uh, thinks he could do so. Uh, that, uh, but you, one could certainly imagine that South Korea is capable of uh, deploying the kind of military capable of deterring and defeating uh, North Korea, at least on conventional uh, terms. People talk about regional stability, but this is a region that has lots of flashpoints. <laughs> it's hard to believe that. You know, American troops there is what holds it all together. Frankly, if there's a dangerous place today, it's Taiwan, and that could lead to a war between the United States and China, which would be extraordinary and very dangerous, even compared to that of Korea. And indeed, some folks believe that there's dual use with the alliance, that isn't it wonderful? We can use South Korean bases if we have to fight China. And uh, you know, my imagination is if the White House calls the Blue House and then suggests that it wants to use uh, South Korean territory to bomb the Chinese, that there would be a heart attack at the uh, denizen at the uh, Blue House. The notion that uh, you know, South Korea would agree to become a permanent enemy of its neighbor next door that's never going away, that has a long memory and is going to be very unappreciative of such activity, I'm very skeptical that we would ever get that kind of uh, agreement. And frankly, I, I don't think China has any interest in war with uh, South Korea, which is the only circumstance I would imagine that uh, you know, they would be prepared to go to war you know, with China. And then there's other stuff. There's talk now about a global alliance and South Korea having global responsibilities. And all of that, to my mind, is quite fine, but it doesn't require American military commitment. I find very strange the notion that America must agree to defend other countries before we can cooperate with them. We see this with Europe as well. The point is we have joint interests, we can work together, that doesn't require the United States to create a military tripwire and essentially promise to go to war. 
Now, North Korean nuclear weapons add to this kind of, a, I think, in an ex exponential way that, uh, you know, no doubt they threaten the, the uh, South Korea. Indeed, uh, you know, during the Cold War, extended deterrence seemed fairly cheap. That is, the U.S., you know, would have to go to war, but it would be a war from an American standpoint pretty much confined to the peninsula. Could be very costly, but that's very different than risking the American homeland. South Korea was the one that risked its homeland. Nukes only, that could only go regionally are very different from nukes that can go intercontinental uh, missiles. And what we see today are the threat of North Korea. If you look at the uh, Rand uh, Alsan Institute study from a few years ago, it's a bit controversial, but uh, it's certainly worth looking at. They warned that by 2027, North Korea could have 240 nuclear weapons. Now, that would put it squarely on the second tier of nuclear powers, well above Israel, certainly alongside uh, Pakistan, India, and Europeans, and even uh, the Chinese uh, in current numbers, so that's growing. And they're working on ICBMs that can target the United States, as well as MIRV warheads, that is multiple independent reentry vehicles, where you have multiple warheads. Assume that world exists, at that point, North Korea could devastate American cities. And that completely transforms America's commitment on the peninsula. Now, I don't believe that uh, Kim, Kim Jong-un is uh, suicidal, that he has any interest in going out in a radioactive funeral pyre in uh, Pyongyang. However, one could imagine him being quite prepared to threaten to use nuclear weapons if he thought the United States and South Korea <coughs> were prepared to overrun North Korea. Assume a war <coughs> occurs. You know, in 1950, the Chinese uh, you know, were kind of the saving grace who came in. I don't think that would happen this time. But one could imagine the North threatening to use its nukes on the American homeland unless the United States drew back. And the question then is, what would an American president do? Now, we believe that extended nuclear deterrence worked with Europe you know, during the Cold War. But of course, we'd gone to war twice for the Europeans. And we viewed Europe as an existential, a vital interest of the United States. We went to war uh, over uh, Korea much more because it was viewed as part of the Cold War and, frankly, concern over Europe. That is, what would the Soviets do if we don't defend Korea? We might, they might decide to attack Europe. Hard to imagine an American president would view going to war over South Korea as being as existential. Would an American president be willing to risk the destruction of American cities? And that is a question that absolutely has to be asked. There's a tendency in Washington to just assume it all away. Well, of course, they wouldn't dare do that. Of course, a lot of people told us that Vladimir Putin wouldn't dare attack Ukraine. You know, people make a lot of assumptions in terms of what other people might do without really looking at their motivations and their capabilities. And it should require us then to ask whether or not we are prepared to maintain a commitment if the ultimate cost could be the American homeland. And this, of course, is driving the uh, South Korean debate. You know, the latest summit everybody's you know, very happy about. Much effort was made to kind of come up with committees and meetings and stuff to convince South Korea that it had a share of decision-making in terms of uh, you know, nukes. But, of course, it doesn't. And the president made that very, very clear. The president's comment was, I make that decision. Made it very clear South Koreans don't. So there's a lot of stuff they're getting, but nothing that actually gives them influence over that decision. And the question uh, from a South Korean standpoint is, are they prepared to let their security rest upon the presumptive promise of a president you know, today that would cover future presidents facing a potentially much more powerful North Korean nuclear force? Are they prepared to kind of trust that? And my reaction is, they probably shouldn't. The United States has demonstrated that it does what great powers do. It acts in America's interest. It gets into Afghanistan, and it leaves. 
it gets into South Vietnam and it leaves, as it should. They cannot forever go to war based upon prior commitments. That is going to be the case, potentially, with any future you know, question in uh, South Korea. And finally, the pressures on the U.S. are going to grow. The U.S. is functionally bankrupt. The U.S. debt-to-GDP ratio, that is the publicly held debt, not the kind of the fake Social Security Treasury debt, is 100% of GDP. It's approaching the record set in 1946 after World War II, which is 107%, 106%. And the Congressional Budget Office tells us if things don't change, we're going to be at double that number by 2050. Nothing in Congress suggests fiscal responsibility. We are running trillion-dollar deficits. I don't expect that to change. No one wants to pay for anything. At some point, Americans are going to have to make choices and figure out how to survive in terms of budget. I would not want to be the politician who goes to uh, assisted living homes and explains that we have to cut Social Security and Medicare because we have rich allies around the world who prefer that we defend them so they can subsidize their own welfare states. And that applies to Europe and a lot of other countries as well. And I think that requires the U.S. to look very seriously at the status of the current alliance and where it should go, and South Korea as well. Good intentions are not good enough for public policy. Lots of people on both sides of the Pacific have very good intentions. I don't think that's enough to have this alliance survive in a climate where the U.S. may be heading towards potentially war with Russia and or China and or the Middle East, as then throw North Korea into the mix. And I think it's very questionable if South Koreans over the long term are prepared you know, to expect the U.S. being willing to risk nuclear war as well. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. Adam. Uh, thanks, and thanks so much for having me here. I think it's an opportune moment to take stock of the alliance and the situation with North Korea. Um, despite it falling out of the headlines, which in some ways is a bit of a relief for those of us who study the issue, um, but in other ways complicates policy and uh, the need to continually adapt and update policy. Uh, that need is more acute now than ever. Uh, just to underline a point in Congressman Sherman's comments, uh, North Korea is a nuclear-armed state. That is a physical fact of the world, that North Korea has nuclear weapons and the means to deliver them to the peninsula and most likely to the continental United States. U.S. policy and the alliance's policy has by and large not adapted to this fact. We are stuck in the past where we, as an alliance, still rely on this convenient political fiction of complete denuclearization. Uh, it is something of a taboo for uh, officials in Seoul and in Washington to intimate that we may uh, deter or do arms control with North Korea. Uh, and increasingly, officials in both Washington and South Korea uh, do, do hint at this kind of shift in policy uh, because we have a very strong incentive to do both. Uh, and it's something of a minor scandal every time we do that, that someone calls a spade a spade and, and dares to uh, say something true in public. The downside of relying on this convenient fiction is that it has kept us from adapting our policy to deter and constrain and transform our relationship with North Korea over time. There's very little political appetite to do that, uh, both in Washington and in Seoul, uh, because it's it would be per it's perceived to be uh, unpopular publicly, but also in terms of professional incentives for each individual official within Washington and, and Seoul, 
uh, it's seen as being risky or unappealing or not worth the effort. And so the Biden administration, like others, uh, and like I expect each administration going forward, uh, comes into office resolved to uh, get a handle on the North Korea problem, which is continuing to spiral out of control. And uh, then decides to put it on the back burner because there's no political or professional incentive to do so. And so, frankly, this administration's North Korea review uh, was essentially a blank piece of paper. And they have not uh, expanded on that initial effort. Uh, I said that the situation with North Korea is spiraling out of control. That's true in terms of their nuclear force structure. Uh, I think the estimate that Doug cited of... Uh, over 200 nuclear weapons is far out of step with most existing uh, public source estimates, which place the size of the North Korea arsenal um, somewhere at or about 60 uh, warheads. It's, it would be very surprising if it quadrupled in uh, the next five years, given their fissile material constraints. Uh, but their ability to deliver warheads with short-range ballistic missiles, submarine-launched ballistic missiles, a bunch of uh, new exotic delivery vehicles uh, is expanding dramatically. They have announced, for example, uh, the uh, acquisition and fielding uh, and even military readiness of a tactical nuclear arsenal for the first time, which in my view is the uh, most serious threat to stability with North Korea. They have said, Kim, Kim Yo-jong, Kim Jong-un's sister, and Kim Jong-un himself, uh, have described the role of this arsenal as not just for deterrence. They say uh, it will not have, our arsenal will not have one mission, which is deterrence. It will have several missions, which include war termination, uh, coercion, and preemption of both conventional and nuclear forces uh, among the alliance, which means that these weapons would be used for more reasons earlier in a crisis almost certainly first, uh, and constitute the first nuclear use on the, on the peninsula, which is an enormous risk. This is a challenge that, as an alliance, uh, we've been slow to, again, adapt to. Uh, but the Washington Declaration uh, in the last couple of months has made some progress on this front. Uh, we've stood up a number of, uh, Doug mentioned, this sort of proliferating, con proliferating constellation of uh, groups with fancy titles. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the encouraging uh, developments is a new series of tabletop exercises, which for the first time, which in itself is uh, shocking, uh, now start to look as an alliance at the risk of North Korean nuclear use and how to respond to nuclear use. For many analysts, uh, the only option for deterring and responding to nuclear use is US nuclear weapons. Over the last 10 or 20 years, South Korea has proven that that's not true. More than any other nation uh, since the advent of nuclear powers, uh, South Korea has demonstrated their ability to uh, deter and respond to nuclear use with conventional forces. That's something that the United States could have learned from. Uh, that's a posture that we do support. Uh, but counterintuitively and somewhat shockingly, that's a posture that we uh, have been talking them out of. And in our effort to uh, underscore that nuclear weapons are important to us as a fiscal responsibility uh, or as a fiscal priority for the Department of Defense as a mission, uh, we have underscored 
and even increased the alliance's reliance on nuclear weapons for deterrence and response to nuclear use. The unfortunate consequence of that is that it has convinced many in South Korea that only a nuke can deter a nuke. Add to that uh, Donald Trump's presidency, the possibility of uh, a new uh, Trump presidency, and many in South Korea are getting understandably skittish that the United States would live up to their commitments to defend South Korea, including to use nuclear weapons. Uh, it is increasingly true that South Koreans now have the ability to defend themselves, both from conventional aggression, invasion, coercion, uh, but also nuclear use. And that's in the advantage of the alliance, it's in the advantage of the United States, and it's very much in South Korea's advantage. The more that we rely on, or the more that we increase the salience of nuclear weapons in our planning, in our alliance consultations, uh, the more we denigrate the effectiveness of that conventional deterrent posture, which is deeply unfortunate. And it is, frankly, fueling uh, proliferation risks and proliferation enthusiasm in uh, South Korea. Uh, you saw at the end of last year, President Yoon make a relatively clear uh, and prominent statements about their ability to acquire uh, nuclear weapons. There are groups in South Korea that are becoming increasingly uh, specific and detailed in uh, not only making the case for nuclear armament, but thinking about how they would go ahead with it. This poses a serious risk to American interests, uh, which remain committed to nonproliferation. The fewer, fewer nuclear powers that there are in the world, the less risk that there is that they will be used. Uh, North Korea or a South Korean acquisition of a nuclear program, even the onset of a program, would cause enormous cascading costs uh, for the United States, for their relationship with Japan. Uh, it would incur economic coercion from China. It would pose a serious incentive for North Korea to aggress against South Korea in the intervening period before they had uh, acquired a survivable nuclear capability. Uh, there would be enormous risks. Domestic political pressure within South Korea. And importantly, these risks are rarely discussed uh, in South Korea. Uh, especially among advocates of, an, of a South Korean nuclear program. But we've become very comfortable at citing polls that show when you ask the South Korean public, would you like a nuclear program? Uh, they say yes, by and large, 70%. Sure. Sounds good. When you start to say, would you like a, a nuclear program if it meant incurring this, these costs, that number drops very rapidly. So... Deterring South Korea from going this direction uh, is an American priority that frankly does not and should not rely on the U.S. extended nuclear deterrent. To shift priority to our conventional deterrent uh, and to talk more publicly and more vocally about how America relies on South Korea's conventional forces about how those are the cornerstone and the bedrock of our joint deterrence posture can help shift reliance away from nuclear weapons and help alleviate this knot and strengthen deterrence at the same time. It's easier said than done. As Doug mentioned, and as a very small handful of iconoclastic American, mostly academics, uh, have, uh, have discussed, um, there is increasing doubt about the American extended nuclear deterrent. Uh, and they've raised this question, would uh, the United States 
trade Seattle for Seoul? Would we put the American homeland at risk if push came to shove? And the answer, frankly, is that the Biden administration would. There is no hard line that would uh, cause the Biden administration to cut and run. Uh, there is no point in an escalating uh, contingency where we would attempt to withdraw American forces, that we would withdraw our de defense commitments, uh, that we would walk away from a conflict. It's not in the psychology. It's not in the plans. Uh, it is not in the interests of, of this administration. The problem is that I can't say the same for a future Trump administration, um, but that is, by and large, the bipartisan consensus within the United States, uh, and it's something that I think South Koreans uh, should be relatively confident of uh, and should support and value. Again, shifting away from our nuclear deterrent can help do that uh, in an even more strong way because there's this ineliminable question about nuclear weapons. Would we use them if, if we were forced to? Uh, and only the president can answer that in the moment. But the question about would we help defend uh, South Korea with conventional weapons is at this point more or less beyond debate. Uh, and it is a uh, strong sort of bedrock principle of the alliance that uh, we both extend deterrence to each other with conventional forces uh, that have helped tip the balance of power on the peninsula further south uh, over time. And that's uh, very advantageous. Hopefully, we can continue to adapt the alliance to uh, meet these changing challenges. Uh, the Biden administration has taken a shot on it. It will require much more attention uh, and much more effort uh, and, a, and a shift in uh, psychology uh, and approach uh, to really do that adequately. Um, and so challenges uh, very much exist ahead of us. Thanks very much. Sammy. Okay, I'm going to take us in a whole different direction. Please, yeah. I'm from the private sector, so I'm looking at the South Korea-U.S. <coughs> economic relationship. Um, and I should note that I've been studying this relationship for 35 years. Uh, I moved to Seoul in 1988, right after democratization. Uh, American companies at that time uh, were beginning to invest increasingly in South Korea, uh, but the view was South Korea, one of the hardest places in Asia to do business. Um, in 2009, 21 years later, um, I returned to the United States, uh, and the American companies then, in 2009, were saying South Korea, one of the best places in Asia to do business. The reason for that change, uh, many reasons, but one of the primary ones was uh, the negotiation and the entry into force of a free trade agreement, uh, the Korea-U.S. FTA. Um, and I should note also that the U.S. only has three FTAs in Asia. We don't have one with Japan. We sure as heck don't have one with China. But we do with Singapore. We do with Australia. Uh, and 11 years ago, uh, the Chorus FTA went into effect. So it's been in operation for 11 years, uh, and I can tell you from an American corporate perspective, uh, and I can also speak for my Korean uh, Chebel friends, it's working incredibly well. It went from a very contentious, um, uh, really head-butting relationship uh, to one of trust and much more partnership. Now, part of the reason for that is our economies are pretty complementary. Um, the um, 
One, one of the best things we have seen, America has seen out of the Chorus FTA, uh, particularly the last three or four years, has been an explosion of high-quality South Korean investment in the U.S. Now, most people are thinking, oh, sure, I've heard of Samsung. I know Hyundai. Um, but it's so much more than semiconductors and cars. It's electric vehicle batteries. Um, it's chemicals. It's petrochemicals. Um, it is logistics. It's food. It's defense. Um, it is across the board. Um, and these investments from South Korea are high-quality investments. Um, there was a recent study that looked at of the jobs created by these foreign investors, uh, which, country, uh, which country's foreign invested jobs are paying the highest? It used to be Japan. Today it's South Korea. So you've got these high-quality investments, and um, they're in sectors that, again, work well for the United States. Um, when I moved to Seoul in 1988, um, Every American company was in a joint venture because the law in South Korea said you had to be. Um, in early 1900, or the early 1990s, uh, the law was changed, and we saw almost every joint venture divorce. There's still a few. Um, LG Caltex is still running, but most of the joint ventures divorced uh, because they had different operating objectives. Uh, the U.S. partner, we wanted um, to get some kind of return for our shareholders. The South Korean partner, he wanted market share at any cost. And often those two objectives were in conflict. Um, but what we saw once the market opened up and we negotiated this comprehensive, high-quality trade agreement, um, it, it, it's been amazing. It's been great for American companies. Uh, and it's been good for Korean companies and Cor the Korean people. Um, so today, we have a bilateral economic relationship. Korea is our sixth largest trade partner. Uh, they were the 10th largest economy by GDP, but they've slipped to, I think, 13th uh, because their trade with China uh, has shrank, uh, as many countries have. Um, uh, and we're seeing Korea. Korea is a country that... Um, they, they grow by trade. 70% of their economy is based on exports. Um, so it's very important, one, for them to have the security umbrella that the United States provides. Um, and, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, not only did we provide that security umbrella, but we also opened our market to them. And as a result, they were able to create this um, miracle on the Han. Um, but again, it was in the U.S. interest to do so. You know, every time when um, the last 14 years, from 1995 to 2009, I ran the American Chamber of Commerce in Seoul. And whenever uh, the North Koreans uh, did anything bad, whenever they tested a missile, did a nuclear test, you know, uh, killed some people, um, uh, U.S. media would call me and say, "How are American investors feeling?" And for the most part, we're fine. Um, I would look out my window, 45th floor of the World Trade Center in Seoul, and the traffic is horrible. I would go to um, a department store, and it was mobbed. It was so crowded. The economy is moving well. Um, as long as that mutual defense treaty remains firm. Um, if there's ever talk that, oh, we might tear that up, 
U.S. companies would have to rethink the, the risk proposition. But in Asia, again, with uh, when I first went to Asia, the U.S. was everybody's number one trade partner. Today, we're almost, well, we are nobody's number one trade partner. And China is almost everybody's number one trade partner. They're definitely South Korea's number one trade partner. So um, what the U.S., though, we've changed our approach. Uh, we've gone from, you know, we used to be a little bit hypocritical. We used to like to finger point and say, you people need to do this. Um, you know, now we're much more persuasive. We look at it and we share with them why it's in everybody's interest. Um, you know, everybody's playing in the same sandbox in Asia. Uh, and we see that some countries follow the rules and some don't, um, which is why we need more free trade agreements. Um, uh, countries like South Korea, like Japan, obviously the United States, rule following is in our DNA. Um, you know, just tell us what the rules are. Our companies can p compete with anyone. Um, but uh, when the rules aren't clear, uh, or if you have a country that just doesn't, they flout the rules, um, uh, what you have is chaos. And in chaos, usually the big dog wins. So other countries in Asia want to see the U.S. Uh, more active. Um, you know, we used to be out there aggressively negotiating free trade agreements. Um, uh, during the Trump administration, during um, day three of President Trump's um, administration, he tore up the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and he threatened to tear up the Chorus FTA. Um, I was at the U.S. Chamber uh, running the Asia program, and uh, concurrently the president of the U.S.-Korea Business Council uh, when the threat to tear up the Chorus came. Uh, and we were fortunate American business was able to defend that. Um, and again, I, I would argue that um, history has proven that that agreement is a very good agreement for America. Um, but we're, uh, since that agreement, um, uh, we had one more trade agreement, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, USMCA, has been upgraded. That's the highest quality free trade agreement in the world. But uh, the rest of Asia, the U.S. hasn't been active. So you've got two mega trade deals, um, CPTPP, that TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, that uh, President Trump tore up for us. Uh, those, that grouping, uh, led by the Japanese, went on, and it's in force. And now new countries are joining. The U.K. just joined earlier this year. You know who else wants to join that agreement? China. Um, uh, it's shocking to me that the U.S., that the agreement that we promulgated and negotiated and really uh, pushed for high-quality rules and high standards, uh, it's enforced, but we're not part of it. And in the trade world, we have a saying. If you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. Well, American <laughs> companies and farmers and workers, uh, they're, they're, uh, they're feeling that pain. Uh, so hopefully at some point the U.S. will get back to uh, doing full free trade agreements. And again, I'll end by just saying the Chorus FTA, uh, in spite of what uh, some people uh, said, it is a high-quality, high-standard agreement, and it is benefiting America. I'll stop there. James. Yeah, first of all, I'd like to thank um, Cato Institute, Eric Doug, for having me here. And I'd also like to take us a little different direction. Um, so we talked about North Korea economy, very important alliance issues. Um, uh, but I would like to focus more on emerging 
issue on the prospects of alliance approach to China. Um, and I would like to make some observations on South Korean domestic attitudes on U.S.-China competition and what they may mean for alliance management um, and you know, having a clear sense of how Koreans um, are talking about and seeing the U.S.-China rivalry, that can help us sort of adjust our expectations. And I think that's sort of going to be important for alliance management. So, yeah. so the U.S. policy toward Asia is quite explicitly indicated in the Indo-Pacific strategy now emphasizes cooperation between the U.S. and regional allies with the goal to check counter and in some ways contain China. As the U.S.-China rivalry becomes sharper, there are growing expectations for South Korea to, to take a greater role in the competition against China. Asia is now commonly framed in Washington as a sort of battleground between democracy and autocracy. And many argue that South Korea, as a liberal democracy, should become, should take choose to make a choice and become anti-China. And given the growing U.S. focus on pushing back against China, we can only assume that policy alignment regarding China will become increasingly a key topic within the alliance and a source of tension if expectations are failed to be met and disagreements are failed to be managed. Um, and Will South Korea become anti-China? Uh, it seems hard to tell for now. Um, it can be possible that South Korea pursues a clear pro-US anti-China policy. But as of now, South Korea seems to be not showing the kind of urgency and desire to confront China as here in Washington. Um, conventional wisdom in Washington now is that you know, the U.S. policy toward China should be centered on competition and confrontation. When we look at South Korea as a political entity among the public, the elite seems to remain uh, not too close from, you know, forming that kind of anti-China consensus. And when we look at the domestic narrative in South Korea regarding China at both the public and elite levels, uh, it seems quite ambivalent. Um, there's a perception that China is a clear threat, but also there's a perception that maintaining cooperative relations with China is important for national interest of South Korea. And the sense of ambivalence is um, clearly reflected in public surveys. Many of us might be aware that South Koreans now tend to see China with strong negativity. Um, Anti-China sentiment uh, intensified among South Koreans since around 2016-17 when China imposed harsh economic punishment against South Koreans' decision to host the U.S. missile defense system, DAD, on its territory. Um, and according to Pew Research Center, 80% of South Koreans now view China unfavorably. And surveys also suggest that many South Koreans now view China's military and economic rise as a challenge and a threat to their country. So based on the numbers, South Korean unfavorability, mistrust, and threat perception toward China, one can 
easily assume that a clear pro-US anti-China direction would be the most preferred policy option among the South Korean public. However, many existing surveys suggest that such is not necessarily the case. In a recent public survey by a South Korean think tank, Kinu, um, asking about Koreans' preferred foreign policy direction, the majority of Koreans indicated more support for balanced diplomacy rather than clearly siding with the U.S. against China. In this case, it was the support for balanced diplomacy was around um, 55%. Um, many other surveys by Korean research institutes and polling companies reflect findings along those lines. A general South Korean preference for avoiding choice between the U.S. and China. The support for a pro-U.S. anti-China sort of policy direction is not small enough to ignore by any means. But in most surveys, the majority seem to prefer the policy of non-choice or the so-called hedging diplomacy. And so what may be driving the sense of South Korean reservation on antagonizing China? One major factor may be the conventional wisdom in South Korea that's been developed over decades that cooperation with China is important for the sake of key national interests like the economy and dealing with North Korea. South Korea is among many Asian economies that sort of piggybacked on China's rise for its own growth. South Korea's economy is highly trade dependent. About half of Korea's total income comes from trade. And in this highly trade dependent economic structure, China has been the largest South Korean trade partner and the biggest source of trade surplus for the past 20 years. Uh, many South Koreans sense a threat from China's economic weaponization, but at the same time, they may find reasons to give you know, the China the benefit of the doubt from their positive experiences with the Chinese market. South Korea for decades has pursued a North Korea policy based on diplomatic isolation and economic pressure which requires Chinese cooperation in many ways. And South Koreans have witnessed with their eyes that China has some real influence on their North Korea policy, sometimes in positive ways, sometimes in negative ways. Um, they've seen Beijing playing a constructive role in the six-party talks, uh, and they've seen Kim Jong-un having multiple meetings with Xi Jinping before negotiations with Korea and the US in 2018. Um, despite China's reluctance to push North Korea too hard, Beijing has endorsed harsher UN sanctions against North Korea when it, when it felt absolutely necessary on occasions of highly destabilizing North Korean actions like nuclear tests. Um, so when South Korea has benefited substantially from the economic relationship with China, and when South Korea for such a long time has pursued a China-reliant North Korea policy, um, it shouldn't be you know, so surprising that the idea of China matters to our country is stuck in the minds of many South Koreans deep inside. Now, this conventional wisdom that China matters to South Korea is shared among South Korean politicians on both sides of the spectrum. We know how the right wing and the left wing uh, you know, they tend to diverge sharply on North Korea. But when South Korean politicians 
whether conservative or progressive, talk about China, they don't appear to show as much difference or disagreement. One good example would be um, how the current conservative President Yoon is being criticized, not only by his left-wing opponents, but also by his rivals within his own right-wing party for overly prioritizing the US and Japan at the risk of relations with China. Tension, yeah, um, and tension has increased between China and South Korea in recent months, and the UN administration has faced domestic pressure to fix the situation. Progressives have criticized UN for pushing South Korea to the front line of a new Cold War against China. Yoon's rivals within his ruling conservative party also have criticized him for unnecessarily antagonizing China at the cost of national interest. Meanwhile, the South Korean media have alarmed the public with news reports about deteriorating, deteriorating South Korea-China relations and potential consequences. And this rising domestic concern about bilateral ties with China put pressure on Yoon administration to reassure the public. South Korean Foreign Minister Park Jin recently did an exclusive TV interview reaffirming that the administration has no intention to confront China and wants harmonious relations with China on a public nationally televised TV. What is, stri what is striking about this domestic pressure and alarm to fix the problem with China is that the UN admin arguably has not taken any clear steps in the anti-China direction, in my view. Rhetorically, the, the UN admin has emphasized values and alignment with like-minded you know, democracies. And under UN, South Korea indeed has enhanced engagement with US, Japan, and NATO countries, and has shown active support for Ukraine, just short of sending weapons. However, when it comes to China, the policy rhetoric of value-based diplomacy doesn't seem to have necessarily translated into policy action. So far, the UN admin has refrained from taking actions that may be considered costly signals of alignment with the US against China. Seoul has not joined Japan and other countries to endorse US semiconductor restrictions on China, remains out of the quad, remains out of the US-led maritime initiatives and exercises that China finds as China sees as provocations. Um, and, and Korea also remains out of US-led efforts to confront and punish China on human rights. Even then, the UN admin is already experiencing domestic pushback against his perceived anti-China diplomacy. In this current South Korean political climate, antagonizing China is considered best to avoid, not something that needs to be done regardless of the cost. South Korean politicians may find political incentives from looking tougher on China, but they also find as much political capital to gain from portraying themselves as pragmatic toward China and prioritizing interests over ideology. Anti-China political consensus can be more difficult to form in this kind of political climate, I think. 
you know, as negative feelings and skepticism toward China grow, South Koreans can eventually become more motivated to pursue anti-China policy. But it won't be surprising if South Korea for the foreseeable future pursues a China policy based on you know, the conventional wisdom that it is best to maintain cooperative relations with both the US and China. This conventional wisdom can change, but probably not overnight. It may take serious changes of thinking in, among many South Korean politicians and um, their voting base. And based on these observations, one can carefully assess that South Korea as a political entity seems to remain far behind forming the kind of strong anti-China political consensus that we see here in Washington or even other capitals like Tokyo. And a lot is therefore unclear about the US-South Korea alliance's policy alignment regarding China. There's a lot of uncertainty. And this assessment may offer some useful implications for alliance management. The US can be tempted to bring South Korea deeper into its strategy against China, but there can be benefits to keeping expectations realistic and refraining from pressuring South Korea to choose between the US and China. When US expectations outpace reality, South Korea is less likely to deliver. If over expectation and fail delivery repeat, tension and friction can continue to grow within the alliance. Some key US regional priorities against China are to build allied military capability and interoperability to enhance the US posture in the Western Pacific, primarily in the, in the effort to bolster Taiwan deterrence, and limit Chinese access to highly advanced technology to contain China's military and economic development. Clearly, from Washington's standpoint, South Korea cannot be an exception to this push. However, these are perceived as extremely difficult and costly demands in South Korea and may not be received well. Ambitious expectations can create significant stress on both sides when they don't match up with reality. They can lead to feelings of disappointment when reality does not measure up. So there is no strong anti-China political consensus in South Korea, and South Korea is pressure to endorse anti-China initiatives rather than by its own need and desire. There can be counterproductive consequences that can undermine alliance cooperation. It can intensify domestic, domestic polarization among South Korean alliance, alliance managers between those who are more hawkish and who are more restrained on China. If the US fails to protect South Korea from potential Chinese retaliation, it can reduce South Korean confidence in the US and increase South Korean temptation to accommodate China. And I believe that that dispute is a case in point. It exacerbated polarization between South Korean left-wing and right-wing alliance managers. US failure or inaction to protect South Korea from Chinese retaliation increased South Korea's sense of vulnerability and may have been partly responsible for triggering the Moon admin to pursue a more accommodative policy toward China. So ultimately, for stable and consistent US-South Korea alliance cooperation, it might be better for the US to avoid focusing too much on China 
transforming the alliance into an anti-China alliance. Instead, prioritize less controversial yet critical common goals, such as dealing with North Korea, improving bilateral trade and investment cooperation, and promoting regional infrastructure development, and working together on pressing global issues like climate change, which the U.S. has described as the true existential threat. South Korean leaders will likely be driven more by U.S. policies and that advance their national interests than ones that require a zero-sum choice. And the U.S.-South Korea alliance can advance further and have a strong positive influence in Asia without having China as a main goal. Right. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, so we'll turn to the Q&A now. Again, if you're in person and want to ask a question, please raise your hand. We'll get the mic to you and please say your name and affiliation if you have one when asking your question. Um, we also have online, if anyone wants to submit a question, they can do so through the Slido window or by using the hashtag CatoFP if they're watching on YouTube, Twitter, or Facebook. Um, I do have a question for Doug and Adam. So you have both presented very contrasting views of sort of the alliance. Doug, your view, I, if I am correctly characterizing, sees the alliance as a primary source of risk in the U.S. relationship or the U.S. Um, posture on the Korean Peninsula, right? And that if you didn't have an alliance with a lot of troops on the South Korean Peninsula, you probably wouldn't have North Korea making nuclear threats against the United States. Um, and Adam seeing it more as a source of potential benefit. Um, I am curious how you feel about the question of how the alliance impacts American freedom of maneuver on certain policy issues, um, especially as it relates to North Korea. Uh, is the alliance... Have a, does it have a constraining effect on American options where there are certain things that we might not consider pursuing or be considered beyond the pale because it would damage an alliance relationship or have the interest alignment between Seoul and Washington has become so sort of enmeshed that that's not really a problem? Well, I think that the U.S. and South Korea do have different interests. So while they coincide, it doesn't mean they're exactly the same. Both countries have some nervousness about the behavior of the other. I mean, in 2010, the U.S. was quite concerned that uh, the uh, you know, then administration, uh, after the, the provocations of North Korea, might respond very strongly militarily uh, in a way that could escalate and drag the United States in. I think we see on the South Korean side nervousness about certain U.S. presidents. I mean, certainly go back to uh, Park Chung-hee was not happy when the U.S., uh, began withdrawing divisions under the Nixon administration and it really helped give rise to a nuclear program at that time, which the U.S. You know, wanted to shut down. You know, so one can't get away from the fact that if you're intertwined, it suddenly gets rather complex. And I think that has to do with the Washington uh, Declaration, where South Koreans would like to believe that they are more involved in the decision-making process for the use of nuclear weapons. The problem is it's easy to, in certain ways, bring them in in a peacetime. It doesn't necessarily mean that they'll have much to say during wartime, uh, especially if a decision would be to use U.S. nuclear weapons. <laughs> Use of conventional weapons, I think, is rather different. But there, you know, of course, the Combined Forces Command, in certain ways, unifies both sides, but is also a major uh, sacrifice of sovereignty on the part of South Korea and raises domestic political issues as well as kind of, I think, larger foreign policy concerns. I mean, to my mind, you should go to war if you have to, not because you can. 
that, uh, you know, in the question of what is an existential interest, what is worth war? And I think circumstances change that. And I think especially where you have a country that increasingly is able to defend itself, it's very hard for me to see how it is in America's interest to defend countries all over the world that by any measure should be able to defend themselves. And the fact that we defend them is a disincentive for them to do more and to defend themselves. We've certainly seen that in Europe. I think that's been the case clearly with Japan and spending 1% of GDP over the years. South Korea spends more because it faces a greater threat. But one could argue to the extent that it perceives the threat requires American assistance, it's not spending nearly enough, that in fact it is capable of spending more and devoting more. So I don't see there being a good reason for the U.S. to extend itself if that's not necessary for American national security. And I think the role of nuclear weapons is simply going to make it much more dangerous. That over the long term, how that plays out, the whole question of extended deterrence, the decisions that might have to be made are going to be, get riskier for what doesn't strike me as being significant benefit for American people. Adam, do you have anything to add on that? Uh, I think Doug and I do disagree uh, on many things, not on all things. Um, the question was about America's freedom of maneuver and latitude for um, decision-making. I don't think most American officials feel constrained by the alliance. Um, I think we're mostly stuck in the mud on North Korea policy for our own reasons, uh, for our lack of imagination and our own domestic political constraints. Uh, with respect to radical upheavals of U.S. force posture in the Pacific, uh, as Donald Trump may have preferred, uh, I do think the alliance constrains the United States, and in that regard, uh, but the but the primary constraint is from the uh, American bureaucracy and the U.S. Congress, uh, and in that regard, I think it's very much for the best um, to maintain an extended deterrence arrangement uh, to help support. South Korea defend itself, because they really do pay the, um, the balance of the cost and the risk uh, for deterring North Korea. And to the extent that we can support that with uh, 28,500 American uh, service persons, uh, with the possibility of uh, standoff strike uh, and engagement, support for ISR and battle space management capabilities, uh, I think that's a bargain. Okay. Um, questions from the audience? Yes, you, sir, in the front. Um, we have a mic coming to you. Uh, please wait for it so the online audience can hear it. And yeah, if, uh, for anyone in the audience in here, if you can just say your name and affiliation if you have one or wish to share one when you ask your question. Uh, Bruce Guthrie. When I was watching the Ukraine invasion, I was thinking, you know, if, if the U.S. had stationed 5,000 troops... Uh, between Ukraine and Russia, it would be a hell of a lot less costly than this war has ultimately been, and it, it might have actually prevented Putin from invading Ukraine. There are certain advantages to posting tripwire troops. Um, in the long run, in some cases, it is much cheaper. How would you respond to, you know, is it a bad thing to have a small contingent of U.S. troops left in South Korea just to avoid a larger war later? Well, one thing I would say is that <clears throat> relative interests matter a lot. For Russia, it is an existential interest. For the United States, it's not a security interest. Ukraine has never been a security interest. What's going on is a tragedy. 
Ukraine spent uh, the Russian Empire under the Russia. We never said we must liberate Ukraine or our security will be threatened. The Soviets occupied <laughs> Ukraine, essentially the Russian Empire in a different form. No one ever said, oh my goodness, we're threatened because of Ukraine. You know, the question of Ukraine's status is not a vital American interest. You know, the Russians it is, so you, you presume that a tripwire presence. You know, if they perceive that a tripwire presence is going to be put in, they'll preempt. I mean, that's one option. And they might go to war anyway. I think we look at the same thing with Taiwan. You know, people talk as if we can kind of wave our hand and the Chinese will go away. This is existential. For them, it's Cuba. It's as close to China as Cuba is to the United States. It also, there's a whole history there of century humiliation, et cetera, that plays into it. And you saw the United States was willing to go to nuclear war with the Soviet Union over Cuba. I mean, they had troops there. Turns out they had nukes there. They had submarines all over. And the U.S. military wanted to invade them. So we shouldn't presume that tripwires always work. And I think you have to ask is, tripwires may fail, right? And then are you prepared for the cost? To my mind, you don't put, we could, we, if it works, why don't we just put a tripwire in every country on earth and say we will bomb anybody who trips a tripwire? Is, I mean, is that in America's interest? I mean, it strikes me we need to make military commitments based on vital interests as opposed to, again, we need to do it because we must, not because we can. I don't think you've answered Bruce's question, though, about the relative cost and benefit of I'm a tripwire versus the subsequent cost. And, and the, but if the tripwire is clipped, we ha you either walk away or you're all in. Are you prepared to be all in? My argument is nothing involved in Ukraine warrants America being all in with a major conventional power that could go nuclear with a country that, again, existential interest, the Russians will always risk and spend more. And how is invading Ukraine an existential interest for Russia? Russia made that very... Uh, I know I, that Russia wants uh, you to believe that it is. Uh, flip it we've around. Got, we've got more career-related questions. Just, let me just real quick. <laughs> flip it around. If the, you know, if the Warsaw Pact extended itself to Central America, the Russians helped promote a coup d'etat in Mexico City against an elected pro-American government, invited that government to join oh, the Warsaw Pact, I see what people in this city would absolutely freak out. It's Cuba. And it's a horrible okay. analogy. But it's to true. Move on, to move on, uh, we have a question from Tim Shorrock uh, for James Park uh, about, do you believe that the Japan under the LDP and South Korea under the conservative PPP are independent players within a sort of U.S.-South Korea trilateral, or U.S.-South Korea-Japan trilateral, um, or is there a sort of perception that the United States is more in charge of that process. And then uh, for Tammy, I have a quick question for you um, about shrinking U.S. political support for free trade and a growing appeal of industrial policy posing. Does it pose any real economic risks to U.S.-South Korea economic relations going forward, you think? Or is that effectively settled by the FTA and it'll be okay? It's a good question. I think the desire for sort of trilateral security cooperation um, it runs at two levels. Like, there is a U.S., uh, certainly U.S. objective. Uh, I think it's become more clear um, as U.S.-China competition um, grew. Uh, but I think the trilateral cooperation has started 
becoming a more bigger goal in U.S. strategy starting uh, third of the Asia, rebalance to Asia around that time. And so there is definitely a certain U.S. Um, desire to sort of uh, group them together. But at the same time, uh, North Korea uh, is accelerating nuclear weapons and its missile programs are diversifying and um, it, it's, um, you know, it's uh, in intensified provocations and so on. And that does pose threat to Korea and Japan and uh, that does create uh, even, you know, reluctant motivation to work together, um, even though they, they might, they might dislike each other, you know, for many reasons, historical territory. Um, yeah, so I think it's sort of a two-level game going on. Yeah. Um, regarding um, the lack of political support for trade in America, uh, to me, I see that more as a lack of political courage. Uh, polling shows that Americans support trade. I mean, the reality is American com companies Farmers, workers can compete with anyone as long as you have a level playing field. And that's what free trade agreements give us. Um, so, you know, uh, having a chorus free trade agreement, um, I think history and uh, the 11 years of actually being in force have shown us uh, trade is up. It's benefiting both and uh, significant uh, high-quality Korean investment in the U.S. It's good for America. So I think uh, it certainly doesn't inoculate us from everything, but it helps. Um, an anonymous uh, question asker on these on watching online asks. Uh, do you feel if a renewed full-scale conflict does occur on the peninsula that it may spread beyond it and affect the surrounding region? I, I think related to this, you hear a lot more discussion in, at least I have picked up on a lot more discussion within U.S. policymaking circles, especially on the DOD, of the concern that in a Taiwan conflict scenario uh, that North Korea attacks South Korea. Um, is this, how much should we think this concern is legitimate? Are, are like, I think this would require a degree of Beijing, China, or Beijing, Seoul, or Beijing, Pyongyang coordination um, that I am not fully convinced exists uh, in terms of either Beijing's ability to influence Pyongyang into attacking um, or that you know, applies a certain level of control of one over the other that I'm not sure exists. Um, but curious, I, I guess that's for... I, I don't think it necessarily requires control. Um, I think we should worry a lot about the risk of North Korean opportunism mm -hmm. uh, in the event that America becomes engaged in a conflict in the Western Pacific. Uh, I, I don't think it requires coordination between Beijing and Pyongyang. I think uh, Kim Jong-un could decide to, to take the cover uh, and aggress, uh, thinking that they had an opportunity to do so. Um, I think we should worry about the opposite as well. Uh, in a crisis on the peninsula, I think it would create uh, an opportunity and a risk that China could aggress as well uh, without that coordination. Uh, this is, these are these kind of complex questions. 
that cut across, across American stovepipes and the alliance really isn't tackling. They're not scenarios that we're really wargaming at a deep level. Uh, at, a, at a sort of very basic level, here's, here's a really simple question. Does the U.S. rock alliance pertain only to North Korea or also to China? Well, it's, you may know better than I, but I don't think there's an answer to that question. And, and it, within well, the there's alliance. no answer. From, from what, I agree with you, yeah. From what you said, James, it seems like not only does it not, but there might be a strong desire in South Korea for it not to. To keep it separate. To keep it that way. I think if the ROK takes a strong anti-China stand, there's a much greater chance that if the U.S. and China end up at war, that Beijing would yeah. encourage North Korea to attack South Korea. I think that's so true. to the extent that China perceives South Korea as a likely enemy, it makes the situation much more dangerous because it would make sense militarily from China's standpoint to push that stretch the United States and punish South Korea. And if China t tries to take <laughs> Taiwan by force or even embargo, um, Korea gets 90, 90 plus percent of its energy through the Straits of Taiwan. South Korea would be immediately involved. Um, in my 35 years of studying Korea and Japan, um, the two leaders, uh, Kishida and Yoon, when they met uh, President uh, Biden last year, both of those leader statements for the first time ever had the word Taiwan in it. Um, so, you know, it would bring everybody into it. And I think you guys are right. In North Korea, you know, Kim Jong-un's not going to, he's not going to be on the sidelines. He's going to want to play. So kind of inching towards this, even, even if there is like this sort of political desire for fence-sitting, the consequences of a conflict could have a sort of uh, generative effect of policy yeah. change and sort of force the decision. All right, and with that, we have the timers showing zeros. I want to thank all the panelists for participating. I want to thank you all, the audience, for participating. We're going to do another uh, short, like, 10-minute break. We're going to be back at 3 o'clock with the second panel of the day, the second and final panel of the day. Um, for y'all, I need you to uh, head back up to undo your mics. Not us, Doug. We're, I know. We're just going to be I know. Uh, <laughs> Not gotcha. But thank you all so much, and we'll see you soon. Cool.